Uh, thank you guys again for having me. Um, it's always a joy and a privilege to help and uh, serve our uh, plants uh, around the uh, DMV area. Love our brother Josh Rolak. I pray that they will have a good time, a joyous time, and a, a time that they're going to be encouraged. Uh, nothing like going to Africa and being a, around those, uh, those, those, those communities of people that just love the Lord. Um, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, looking at verses 6 through 15. 6 through 15. And I'll read for us. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather collectively with one another to sing songs and hymns, spiritual songs, God, that would encourage and uplift, to pray prayers, Father, to read scripture, and to hear the word preached. Lord, I pray that none of this would be in vain, but we know that it would accomplish what it was set out to do. Lord, to convert, to convict, God, to conform and mold into the image of your son. And we ask, Lord, right now that by your spirit that you would just open up our ears and our hearts, God, to receive your word and plant it that we just wouldn't be merely hearers of your word, God, that we would become doers of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, some of my fondest memories uh, as a child and even as an adult <clears throat> have come from gifts that my parents gave me, from birthdays to holidays to graduations, and just random surprises just because. Uh, now I wasn't I wasn't um, I wasn't spoiled by any means. Trust me on that. I wasn't spoiled. I didn't grow up getting Jordans or anything like that. Didn't get the latest uh, uh, latest uh, name brand clothes or anything like that. Um, I remember one instance. Uh, my dad, if he did give me something like a name brand shoe, I remember. I don't know if y'all know Grant Hill or when he was that thing back in the day. He had some new shoes that came out, some pant leather felines. They came out, 
I didn't get him. But my dad decided to get them for me. But when he did give me the first pair that came out, uh, a second pair had already come out. I got clowned. Then I remember Deion Sanders had a pair of cross trainer shoes and some Nikes uh, back then. I was in sixth grade. Same thing happened. Uh, my dad was military, so he went overseas. And then when he came back, I mean, it had been like a year later, he brought me these shoes. Not only were they old, but they were too small. But I tried to rock them anyways and, and jacked up my toes a little bit. And so he was not about trying to stay up on the latest name brand clothes like that. They were not trying to spoil us by any means. Um, however, there was one gift that I received daily, a gift that I took for granted and, and, and that, I, that I never considered a blessing until I became an adult. Uh, that was the gift of seeing my parents getting up every morning and going to work. My father liked clockwork. We get up at 5.30 a.m., read his daily proverb, pray and, and head out the house. He was consistent in that. My mother the same way. I remember, I remember when she decided to go back to a PA school. I can recall on so many, so many occasions how studious uh, she was and how disciplined that she was to study and prepare from late at night until the early hours of the morning. I remember that. My parents did not spend a lot of time being idle. Outside of their jobs, they were very active active in all extracurricular activities, church, serving others, uh, consistent, punctual, and diligent, maybe because they were military. But I believe it was the Lord. They were hardworking. They were nurturing. But they were also committed to the word of God, to the local church, and to pointing us, me and my two older sisters, pointing us to Christ. Not only through their words, but also by modeling. See, Seeing those characteristics and, and values carried out by my parents was a, a great example for my sisters and I to witness and to live by. Now, I'd love to say that we followed all their examples and exhortations, uh, but we didn't. I know I didn't. Uh, let me just speak for myself. See, I, I know I gave my folks a lot of scares, a lot of headaches, high blood pressure, plenty of disappointments, plenty. Uh, that I'm sure they, you know, they left uh, their heads just dangling, just shaking like, man, where did we go wrong with this boy? All types of days and nights. And one thing I can always hear, it just rings to this day. One thing I can always hear them saying, well, even to this day if I'm doing something, I don't do, I don't do nothing crazy these days. I'm too mature for that now, but uh, I, I hope I am. They would often say back then, boy, we didn't raise you like that. Where did y'all learn that from? That's not how we, what we taught y'all. But they do say that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Because now, as a more mature man in Christ, I say that very same thing. That's not how we were raised, if I'm talking to my, my sisters. and some things that they're doing. Remember what they taught us. And that introduction is very similar to what Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica. He's writing this letter to these brothers and sisters, saying to them, as we just read in this text, remember what we modeled before you. Remember what we taught you. Remember the examples of the apostles, 
Don't forget that. He's like, y'all know better than that. Y'all know this. This is that similar expression that, that we find here. Why? Because Paul had caught wind of the mischief going on with some of the members in the church of Thessalonica. And they seem to be major. They seem to be major because there's two letters that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians about the same thing. So they're major. There's a consistency here in a revolving cycle. There were some men who were living unruly, disruptive, undisciplined lives. They were unwilling to work. And as a result, becoming busybodies, troublemakers, gossiping. Busybody could translate into meddling in other people's affairs or being gossipy, talking about others or their business. And so because they're messy and because this wasn't the first occurrence, the apostle writes with a very strong command how they ought to deal with such people in the church. We should note, uh, we should not ignore the fact that our passage both begins, so in verse 6 and ends around 14, 15, uh, with exhortations, not just to the idol, okay, but to the rest of the church. To what? The rebuke, excuse me, to rebuke. So it's not just addressed to those who are just being busybodies. The main, the main content is addressed to how we interact with those, how we address those situations. See, the rebuke that's addressed directly to the Christians who were living improperly is rather a brief one. But the bulk of the passage contains Paul's counsel to the church about how to deal with disruptive persons who were not following the apostolic example or the instructions. Thus, the passage deals as much, if not more, with the exercise of church discipline as it does with the uh, specific problem of idleness. Now, let's look in verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. See, his first, uh, he commands them in the name of Jesus Christ. Since Christians are those who have call on the name of Jesus for salvation he Christ deserves their absolute obedience Christ since he has drawn us by his blood to the father he is now our Lord nobody else is so he says he who saves you deserves your absolute obedience Amen. he deserves our I, our love, he is our aim. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. So he's saying, don't follow or submit to this command simply out of respect of the apostleship. What Paul, don't, uh, don't do it out of respect for the apostleship, out of the respect of the title or the office. We do respect that. However, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's saying that the ultimately the pastor is not your God. The pastor ought not be the idol, nor the office. Heck, even your mother and father shouldn't be your God. But it is the God that has put those individuals in the place that you submit to. So yes, as we submit to them, we submit to God. And we only submit to them as they are submitted to God. 
And so Paul evoked the authority of the name in an effort to remind the church of their obligation of obedience to the Lord and to ensure obedience by emphasizing that the important commands they were about to receive were not Pauline. They was not of him or his opinion, but the commands of Christ. So he wants to get that straight first. But the question is, what is this command? The command is to keep away from every brother. It's not just gender specific. It's, it's gender neutral. Men, women, anybody living in an unruly way. To keep away from any brother or sister who leads an unruly life, walking in idleness. It says, refuse to associate with any fellow believers who persist in or continues to live contrary to the traditions, to the teachings they had received from Paul and his co-workers. Paul, I do not believe, is commanding a group of people in the church. I believe he's talking to everyone in the church. He's not trying to isolate a group or isolate an individual. He's like, no, this is everybody's ordeal. This is everybody's responsibility right here. And I say that because he's telling them to practice a form of church discipline. See, the exercise of discipline was and is the responsibility of the entire church, the church as a whole. <clears throat> it's not the leadership alone. It's not just the, the pastor by himself. For the sake of unity in the body, that's why he's telling everybody. So it was, it, it was imperative that the collaborative action by the entire congregation took place. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. I mean, if you had one individual or just one group, one sect, and everybody else not doing their thing, uh, you can't just have one group ostracizing the offender and then another group still having regular fellowship and commuting with this offender. It would be very, very confusing. It would be uh, working against what you're trying to do. So everybody has to be in unison, in a collaborative effort. Everybody must be on board. Hence, Paul saying, take note of this person towards the end, because everybody must know. And what happens is, uh, if that were to happen, is that sort of punishment or discipline ends up being totally ineffective, because the offenders would feel the weight, they would not feel the weight of their sin, or the need to repent. And that's the purpose, that they would feel the weight of their sin, and be drawn to repentance. So by ostracizing such persons, the church as a body would be able to express its disapproval in a manner that the offender could not dismiss lightly. And so ultimately the goal of the church is to see the sinful one repent, return to Christ's likeness, return to the Christ lifestyle, and to have them return and be restored to the fellowship of believers. That's the whole purpose of church discipline. It's not to just kick somebody out. It's not to just critique, but it's to correct lovingly, graciously, and then wanting to see that person be drawn back in. You don't want people just to be kicked to the curb and let them, let them stay there. No. We also have a responsibility, as uh, he says in Galatians chapter 6, to, 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 to uh, gently restore them, those of you who are spiritual. So there is a work being done in that as well. That's why we, as a body, this is what we, we, we pray for. This is what we hope for. This is what we desire. And so why shouldn't we associate with these unruly brothers? Well, we'll see that in verse 11. But then we'll work our way backwards as well. 
He says, because they do not work. Because they do not work. He says, they don't work at all. Paul here explains the exact nature of the problem that motivated him to prescribe disciplinary action against the disorderly. Meaning, he says, they were not trying and are unwilling and instead they were acting like busybodies. They weren't trying. They were unwilling. They were against work. They weren't putting no applications out there. Weren't trying to better themselves in any way to be productive. Instead, what happens? They became meddlers, gossipers, disrupting other people's lives. These folks were engaged in unproductive behavior. So, he says, keep away from the idol brothers because they're unproductive and troublemakers. Now, I, I'm sure uh, some of you have heard that an idol mind is a devil's playground. I heard it before. Yeah. This passage brings a lot of that to bear. It brings a lot of truth to that, to whoever coined that phrase. See, because the idleness leads to becoming a busybody. Unproductive laziness eventually leads to disorder and disruption. Idleness leads to daydreaming. Laziness, idleness leads to all types of mischief. It leads to all types of crime. That's why you have so much crime going on because people, they like, man, what do I do? They ain't doing nothing. They just thinking about nothing, which leads to all types of other mischief. It leads to lust. Think about David and 2 Samuel. What, what was David supposed to do? At the time in the spring where King should have been out to battle, they was up on a rooftop waking up from a nap. He sees something nice. He says, man, let me look at this thing a little bit too long. And we know what happened. Commits adultery. It leads to not just adultery. It leads to the lust. Even like pornography. You're sitting there and you start going on your phone. Then there's other types of lust as well. Which What happens? You lust after certain things that you don't need and you start making all these emotional purchases all over the internet, or you get sucked into the uh, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter wars, whatever the social media wars are. And then you look up, and it's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then you eventually go back. You take a break, but you go back to it. This idleness is tricky, y'all. It leads to all types of unwise habits. It leads to the neglect of responsibilities. Just all types of unfruitfulness. And the question is, how did they get there and then how do we get there to that point of idleness? How did they drift to that point? When they stepped away from the traditions that they were taught. The apostolic traditions, the apostolic teachings, and all the examples of a disciplined work life and self-support is what they stepped away from. It was laid out before them just like we've seen examples in our own lives, maybe not in our households, but we've seen somebody out there doing it. And yet, it, it, it flees us. And so we see this in verses 7 through 10. It says, we do not act in an undisciplined manner among you, verse 8, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So, they strive to practice self-control in all areas of life. They didn't look out for their own personal interests, but considered others more highly than themselves by working day and night, and not as to be a burden on the church, no, but to be a blessing to the church. And they did this for the sake of modeling how they should act. 
So there's two things to be aware of. Two things to be aware of, beloved. <clears throat> One, although you can be in a good church with godly people and have pastors who are excellent models and who labor at caring for your souls, you are always one step away from the possibility of drifting into idleness. It can be very subtle, very quiet, very nonchalant. You may not notice it immediately, but others may. Your demeanor slightly changes. Your talk is different. Your once consistent habit of gathering with the saints every Lord's Day and during the week becomes infrequent. Your attitude towards Christian concerns become apathetic or frequently overcritical. Or you may be becoming progressively concerned about civilian affairs and all other cares of the world. Your desire for prayer and the word slowly diminishes. And the rebellious culture of the world doesn't grieve your heart as much as it used to. You become desensitized to the things going on around you. And then your convictions, they evolve into compromises. All the while thinking that you're okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Secondly, leaders, uh, leaders must strive to be an example to the flock. Those of us who preach, teach, lead, are in leadership in any capacity. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, we leaders must live in such a way that our lives do not contradict what we preach or teach. Therefore, disqualifying us, or even worse, causing someone else to stumble. We must be self-controlled in mind, speech, and actions. Even as Paul urges them to follow their traditions, we also, we also uh, must follow their tra apostolic traditions as well, given to the scripture. See, disciples, when Paul said you follow the apostolic traditions, he's calling these guys to be disciples. We're all disciples of Christ. And disciples were obligated to, to imitate those who had established them in the faith. See, the Apostle Paul isn't being shallow or arrogant here. He's like, nah, he ain't, follow me because I want my numbers. He ain't talking about that. He ain't saying we need more people up in the church to, to, to put my name on the billboard. No, he's not being arrogant. It's not about him trying to build a, a team of Paulines or Paulites. See, teachers of the day, they were expected to instruct their disciples, both in their words and with their manner of life. See, in return... Disciples were expected not only to understand the wisdom of the teachers, but to emulate their wise behavior as well. And any disciple of Christ that isn't following him in this manner is operating in sin. However small, however big it is, it's still sin. And because these believers, uh, because of their unrepentant lifestyle, Paul says that they must break fellowship with them. And so let's transition back to verses 9 and 10. See, verses 9 through 10, he, he, he pointed out 
that his refusal to live off the church did not result from a lack of authority. He's saying, no, this ain't, this is not because of a lack of authority that I had. No, I actually had it. He said he did, in fact, have the authority as an apostle to expect the church to care for his physical needs. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 14 reads, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So if a brother is laboring before you diligently, consistently, the church should, should pay him. The church should support him in whatever ways that they can. Not in an excessive manner, no, 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 no. But as you all see fit and are able to give. See, Paul, he chose, however, not to exercise that right. And so what kind of example did Paul have in mind here when he says, oh, this is my example, this is what I'm modeling before you. I wonder what he had in mind here. Well, this context calls for an example of one who is not disruptive. So one, he's like, yeah, well, let me live in a way that's not disruptive. Verse 11. Also, and one who provides for his own needs rather than attach himself like a leech to the vein of kindness he finds in others, which we see a lot in this day and age. You got leeches trying to drain the resources of the local church. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And if I have the ability to work and have my own means, so I do not, one, he's not going to become leech, but I don't want to be perceived as one, let me do that. Because why? It was common for teachers of that day to receive compensation for those, for, for those they taught, but it often resulted in charges that the teachers cared nothing for the disciples or their disciplines, but, but, but did what they did solely for the exaltation and the material gain that it brought them. Therefore, you can have unbelievers teaching uh, all over the, the, the country in these seminaries, uh, all liberal. Um, they can teach in these uh, theological institutions, and they don't care anything about their disciplines. They don't care anything about their students. It's all about the material gain. As liberal as they may be, man, they, they still remain there in those institutions. And not even just in the institutions, even in the churches. The churches is all about the name recognition for some members. Oh, this brother is brilliant. Or he's really sharp. It doesn't matter about his character. It doesn't matter about the, the, the heresy that he's spewing. They keep him there. Why? Because nobody there is trying to hold to the bloodstained banner of Christ. They're not trying to hold to the uh, exclusivity of Christ, to the deity of Christ, to the, the triune God. Is it kind of intellectual? Can he say it? Can he close? Can he hoop all that good stuff? It can be a detriment, and it's obviously a disservice to the church. Hmm. So we got to get away because sometimes it can be to them just a, this intellectual exercise of the mind and all about receiving notoriety for their scholarship. And so we're not trying to do that. And Paul is very much aware of that. And so because he faced similar criticisms, he decides to go in the opposite direction, right? And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, 3 through 12, uh, it implies that he had critics in Thessalonica 
who were attempting to convince the church that Paul was motivated by greed, teaching whatever uh, would earn him human approval and financial support. So he's aware of this. However, Paul answered these charges with the evidence of his life. He's like, no, let, let, let me prove to you. Let me live this thing out so that you can see that I'm about this real life of the gospel. See, he, routine, he routine, uh, routinely refused church support in favor of working to supply his own needs so that he could supply the gospel to the church freely. And in verses one, uh, excuse me, verse one, uh, verse two, rather, in First Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 10, he says, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3 and verse 10, he says the same thing, similar. He says, but for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. On top of what he's already said. So the situation, the situation led Paul to command and urge the idol to eat their own bread and work quietly. Because apparently they were doing stuff that was very, very loud. See, Paul is putting on extra measure of emphasis on this statement right here. He is letting the congregation know how serious he is. See, he commands and exhorts the disorderly to self-reform. Not only to self-reform, but to repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. See, the fruit of which will be seen in their work in quietness and eating their own bread. He says, that's how you know you're actually repenting. That's how I know you've actually reformed your character. Because now you're working. And now you're being quiet. You're no longer being a busybody. That's how we know. And a lot of times we shall know them by the fruit. That's what he's saying there. I'll know you by your fruit. Not just what you say, but now what you're doing. You weren't working then. You was being lazy and stuff like this. Okay, now you're working. You were gossiping and talking and meddling and all this stuff. Okay, but now you're quiet. And not just that you just don't say nothing to nobody, but you're not gossiping. You're not meddling. You're tending to your own. He said, that's how I know. Persons who work quietly to earn their own keep will not only avoid <clears throat> the gossip and not only avoid depleting the church's resources unnecessarily, but also are more likely to earn the respect of those outside the church and less likely to find themselves in need. See there in 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. See, that's the Christian work ethic. That's the Christian work ethic right there. Five things to remember off of that. Five things. One, work is a gift and a mandate. Work is a gift and a mandate. God created man in his image with characteristics like him. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. He says, he created man to work with him in the world. God planted a garden and put Adam in it to cultivate and maintain it. Also, Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over the earth. What does this original work mandate mean? What does it mean? To cultivate means to foster growth and to improve. To maintain means to preserve from failure or decline. To subdue means to exercise control and discipline. Rule over means to administer, take responsibility for, and make decisions. See, this mandate applies to all vocations. Anything that we do. 
that mandate applies to it. We have no excuse. Whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. Number two, work is not a curse. I've heard so many people say this. Man, work is, man, it's a curse. Now, we're, we're working a curse. The ground that we work on is cursed. God cursed the ground. We became, excuse me, work became difficult. The word toil is used implying challenge, difficulty, exhaustion, struggle. Work itself was and is still good. But man must expect that it will uh, be accomplished by the sweat of our brow. Also, the result will not always be a positive one. You can grind all you want, be on time all you want. Sometimes it's just not going to make the difference for a positive result because the ground's cursed. Because although man will eat the plants of the field, the field will also produce thorns and thistles. Hard work and effort will not always be rewarded in the same way the labor expects or desires. Three, work should be productive. Genesis chapter 3, verse 31, declares that when God viewed the fruit of his labor, he called it very good. God examined and assessed the quality of his work, and when he determined that he had done a good job, he took pleasure in the outcome. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 13 says, And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. By these passages, uh, it seems very apparent that work should be productive. We should conduct our work in a way that produces the highest quality outcome. Fourthly, our work, or the lack thereof, exposes our character. See, work reveals something about the one doing the work. It reveals underlying character, the motivations, skills, abilities, and personality traits. Y'all been at work, y'all done some stuff where y'all gotten upset, short tongue, attitude jacked up, whatever happened, it reveals that to us. I mean, think about uh, how, how often we might be late for work or how often have we taken, uh, taken advantage of company time, those of us who work remotely or something. Now we got to think about those things. It reveals what's in us. It reveals our character. Because <clears throat> Jesus echoed the principle, excuse me, yeah, he echoed the principle in Matthew chapter 7. He says when he declared that bad trees produce only bad fruit and good trees only good fruit. So what are we working towards? And then fifthly, this is our work further represents God to the world. It represents God to the world. And Psalm 19 says that God reveals himself to the world by his work. And Isaiah 43 indicates that God made man for his own glory. Therefore, work done by Christians should give the world an accurate picture of God in righteousness, faithfulness, and excellence. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's what we do. And then Paul then turns from this. Paul then turns from addressing the disorderly and now speaks directly to the other members concerning what they ought to do in the face of this disobedience. Verses 14 through 15. And I'm almost done. He says, don't grow weary in, 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 in uh, doing good. The meaning here isn't, hey, uh, don't tired physically in what you're doing. 
He's not saying that. Uh, but don't become emotionally drained and discouraged in doing good towards others because of the exploitation of the idol. He says, no. He's not saying the physically. No, nah, don't, don't, don't give up. Uh, Paul may have feared that exploitation by the idol might discourage the church uh, that they would cease all benevolence. You know how sometimes we can be doing, um, not you guys, but there have been organizations or churches doing some good work, and then you got one bad apple in the bunch uh, from the outside takes advantage of that good stuff, that good work. And so what happens is the organization then shuts the whole thing down because you had a few people taking advantage of, of the resources, and they just cease to do anything. Paul was like, no, nah, don't, don't get tired of doing that good work. Don't allow them to mess you guys up mentally. Don't allow them to emotionally drain you guys. Keep doing it. Uh, even though you got bad people out here, don't stop it because it messes up the whole thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because when doing well results in being exploited, and it does, it can be this, uh, disheartening experience. People will always try to exploit the good, the good works every time. See, it was a bad, it was a bad enough um, experience that the idol robbed the churches of the resources and it would be worse still if their actions also robbed the church of its willingness to engage in Christian benevolence it's like no don't allow them to do that don't cease to do their work and more importantly they're not allowing weariness to cripple your good works don't allow yourselves to be tainted by the examples of the lazy the idle and the busybodies. what can also happen right People will exploit your good works, but then also in our frustration, we can then become like those who exploit us. We start talking bad about folks. Man, can you believe this joker? We start getting this hardened and then allowing our frustration or our anger to cause us to sin. He says, be angry, but do not sin in your anger. And so we have to fight against that when people try to come against us. Whether members or people from the outside, we must not allow them to then force us or make us or tempt us to become like them. We got to guard our hearts and our minds against that. The disorderly, they had rejected the teaching about the labor, about labor that the Christian messengers had given them while in the city. And also not responding when the same instruction was repeated in the first letter. They did not change their ways, even when admonished by other members of the congregation in 1 Thessalonians. So he says, if anyone doesn't obey what we say, what do you do? You take note of them, and then you disassociate from them. Here the church is called to disassociate from the unrepentant members with a redemptive goal in mind. Key phrase right there. With a redemptive goal in mind. These people continue to be considered members of the family of faith and not outside the boundaries of salvation. See, the discipline prescribed is not quite the same as excommunication right here. That's why Paul says, hey, don't treat him as an enemy, but as a brother. He's very specific. Too often, we can get into some, some very gray areas to where somebody inside the church or other believers outside somewhere else. We see this a lot on social media where there will be a disagreement 
some people will be acting unruly and then we treat them as they are uh, unbelievers. We treat them as if they are no longer of the faith. That's why he says, don't treat them as if they are evil. Don't treat them as if they are, are an unbeliever. They're still a brother or sister in Christ. That's why this is a redemptive goal. And not just, that's why it's not totally excommunication. They're still in the faith. They just acting silly right now. But they're still in the faith. Even though they are acting anti and all of that good stuff. But we got to be careful of that. Because we are very, very dismissive as this body of believers, to really on social media, we are calling folks out, blasting folks. And then what does it say about our own witness to a dying world, to unbelievers? They, they look at that and say, man, they kill their own wounded. We don't want to be a part of that stuff. So we got to be careful about that and how we represent that. And so <clears throat> there's a redemptive goal in mind. The discipline described here is not a excommunication. The concern that motivated this call to separate by Paul is not that the rest of the church will be infected by the behavior of the unruly, but that the unruly will respond to the discipline. And so he's not too focused on the separation so nobody else is infected, although that is the goal, but rather to have them respond in a uh, uh, repentive uh, state of mind to that discipline. This separation implies that other members of the church should not meet with this disorderly person. Therefore, they would be excluded even from the common meal of the assembly, the Lord's Supper. Moreover, see, the members of the church are not to engage them socially, although the call to admonish them implies that they would not be cut off from all communication. What does he mean by this? Well, we're not going to be bonding and kicking a man uh, like you're not in sin. We ain't about to be just having this uh, jovial, whatever conversations without me at least asking you, brother, sister, where are you with this? Have you confessed? Have you repented of this? Uh, you know, we're disassociating from you for, for a reason, for a purpose, right? How has the Lord been working on you? Those should be those, those conversations that we're having with those who Paul is talking about that we ought to disassociate from. It's not just that we leave you out, don't say nothing to you. It's not that we kick you out and then keep hanging like ain't nothing different. But no, we are having intentional conversations with this brother and sister. Making sure that they understand why they are being disciplined. Making sure that they understand why we are disassociating. We want you to feel, that's why Paul says in the text, so that they may feel the shame. They may feel the weight of that, of their sin. And not because the man sin once, no, he's saying no. They are in unrepentant sin. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. This is why we get to this point. And so he exhorts. He exhorts. He, she, and they are not an enemy, but warn him, a brother or sister, as a brother or sister. Although the person is excluded from the community, some contact does continue that gives the member of the church an opportunity <clears throat> to admonish him in the hope that such warnings will convict them to a, uh, to a posture of repentance. And so the person continues to be a member of the church in the community of faith, although they may not be allowed to take uh, of the supper. Now hear this. 
the admonition, <clears throat> the admonition that one who is unwilling to work and should not eat, only concerns unwillingness rather than the inability. See, there's a difference in James one chapter uh, twenty-seven, uh, uh, chapter one verse twenty-seven. He describes true religion in part as looking after orphans and widows in their distress. See, needy children and widows, the disabled, those with special needs, the elderly, and others who cannot earn a living, they are deserving of the church's help. Absolutely. As believers, it is important that we be known for our strong work ethic and helping those in true need. And I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> as he says in Matthew 5, says, we should, as Christians, uh, let our light shine before others that they may see our good works, good deeds, and glorify our Father in the heaven. That's the ultimate goal. That's why we work. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we do uh, what we do and how we do it. Because we want to glorify. We want them, our good deeds, to glorify our Father in the heaven. We want them to see that. And so, beloved, uh, what we have seen uh, in this text, the, fruit, the fruitlessness and how it results in laziness, and the idol and the impact that it had on the church at Thessalonica and the effect that it can also have on us. But we, we, we've also been reminded of what our responsibility is uh, as Christ's ambassadors. And that is to fight against idleness by working unto the Lord, whatever that may be. So if you're at work, you work unto the Lord. Kids, if you're just in school, high school, wherever you may be, do your homework unto the Lord. Uh, if it's chores, do your chores unto the Lord uh, as you're submitting to God through your parents. Uh, whatever it is, we, we do it unto the Lord. We want to make sure that we're not being uh, idle, and that's tough to do. But what do we need to do? Sometimes we, you, you may have to make a schedule for yourself. Planner, calendar, whatever the case may be, make some notes. Build an accountability partner, something like that. Do whatever you can to build guardrails so you don't step outside and get hit. Unknownly by oncoming, tra oncoming traffic. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this reminder in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As Paul writes to the church about idleness and the effects of it and how we ought to uh, come against it, Father. I pray that we would take on this word, Father, and apply it and be wise and winsome with it, Father, as best as we can. And Lord, idleness creeps in so subtly and so often. Uh, we, we've all been tempted by it. We all have struggled with it and fallen into it, Father. And I pray that by your spirit that you would strengthen us even now, that you would help us build up those guardrails, God, even now, that, one, we would pray and that we would be in your word, God, and know that your word is sufficient and know that, God, by your stripes we've been healed, and so we no longer have to be burdened with that, but by your spirit we are overcomers of it all. And so let us trust in you and know that we can lean on you, and we know that you will give us what we need. As you already said in your word, you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.